Support for Motley Fool Money comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's a Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analysts Jason Moser, Matt Argersinger, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, 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 hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Bloomberg's Brad Stone will give us an update from Silicon Valley. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney's second quarter profits came in higher than expected, thanks in part to the success of Black Panther. Revenue from the studio division up more than 20% year over year. And Maddie, it wasn't just the studios, parks and resorts, the media division, they were all better than expected. And shares of Walt Disney basically flat this week. What gives? Uh, it was a great report all around. I just think, unfortunately, until this cloud over Disney's media networks business, which did beat expectations, but you know growth is slowing down, profits were down. And then you've got the Fox acquisition. I think this, those are just hanging out there for investors. And until those get resolved in some form or fashion, I don't see the stock making uh, that much of a move. But yes, I mean, the studio business, Black Panther, we've got you know Avengers Infinity War now, we've got the solo movie, and we've got Incredibles 2. You know, at some point, we've always talked about Disney as a hit-driven business. I mean, you know, it, it, you can have a blockbuster one quarter and, and a bust the next quarter. But Disney has the ability now to really turn out a billion-dollar blockbuster hit every quarter if they wanted to. And I just think at some point, the company should be valued a little more based on the studio business than it has been. Yeah, I think Maddie's just keying in on the point um, as to why Disney is such a great investment, really, is because you can have stretches where maybe all of the segments of the business aren't quite firing on all cylinders. Sorry, hey, hey. Uh, But that just is kind of what we're seeing is with the stock. The stock sort of maintains the status quo until they kind of get back down to business. And I think the the Comcast sort of versus Disney idea with the Fox acquisition there, that'll probably play out here over the course of the next quarter. But I, Maddie and I were talking about this at uh, Starbucks the other day. We just want to make sure that Disney gets Hulu out of all yeah, of this, right? Because that really key. is the platform that, that I think the matters key. the most, and, and that will enable them to put pretty much whatever content they want out there with a platform that is already in a lot of homes that a lot of people are already familiar with. I have a Steve-type question. Do I need to see Black Panther before I see the Avengers? <laughs> yes, you absolutely <laughs> Is that true? Do. Yeah, all right. you do. There you go. Take care of that. Very good. Uh, I understand, Maddie, the the doubts about, as you said, there, there are a couple of clouds uh, that need to be cleared before some on Wall Street feel like uh, this is a stock ready to take off. Here's what I don't understand. The one Wall Street analyst who came out this week and talked about uh, one of his concerns being that the uh, the studios and the parks are, and I'm quoting here, peak-like. Has this person never been to Walt Disney World? <laughs> like The idea that we think Disney has reached its peak in terms of its ability to charge money at the parks that's insane to oh, me. Absolutely insane. I mean, I think there is, in terms of entertainment companies, there is no company in the world that has the pricing power that Disney has. And by the way, it's you got to remember, it's not just about the box office or the parks by themselves. I mean, it's just all the different things, all the merchandise sales, consumer products, video games, Broadway shows that come out of 
Disney's intellectual property, and and you just never can can you know, undercount that. Well, you asked the right question in the production meeting, Chris, and is just does this analyst actually have kids? Because if you have kids, <laughs> right. then I think you really get it. And you understand that this is a generational play, and if you have kids, at some point you're going to be enjoying this stuff with your grandkids, and it just kind of keeps on going on. First quarter profits for Nvidia came in much higher than analysts were expecting, but shares of the chip maker falling a bit on Friday, nonetheless. Ron, you look at this stock. Nvidia has had such a great run the last two to three years. Is that why we're seeing a little bit of the dip? Another amazing stock that I've never owned a share of. <laughs> it's amazing my wife stays with me. Um, so yeah, I mean, up a hundred percent this year, up eleven hundred percent since 2015. Beat analyst estimates this time around. Revenue up 66 percent. Really strong numbers. Um, beat consensus revenue estimates in each of its five segments. Um, again, very impressive. Now, what? investors, I think, are focusing on here is the comment in the conference call that they're seeing a slowdown in demand for products for cryptocurrency miners, whatever that means. <laughs> so, no, seriously. But they're, they're saying that July quarter sales of these types of products will be about a third of the April quarter sales. So, a big slowdown in, in the hottest kind of area right now. That might be what investors are focusing on. Uh, Advanced micro devices also down on the news, and then kind of what you were alluding to. The stock is pretty much priced per- for perfection over after a thousand percent increase, thirty-seven times EBITDA is a is a tough number, and and you've got to really put up solid, solid results. All right, let's move on to online travel. Both TripAdvisor and Booking Holdings, aka Priceline, reporting first quarter results this week. Both better than expected, but Jason, it was TripAdvisor's stock that got the bump. You looked at this quarter. Was it that great a quarter for them? Well, I need a broken clock and all that stuff, right? It's, <laughs> it's been a very tough stretch here for TripAdvisor. But let me ask you, Chris, can you put a price on swimming with pigs? Uh, can you put a price on swimming with dolphins? I feel like Ron's question about seeing Black Panther was easier to answer. <laughs> well, I, I say that because TripAdvisor actually gave me the opportunity to do both of those things in, in the Bahamas and Hawaii. To swim with pigs? Swimming with pigs, yeah. We'll talk more about after taping, but Spanish Wells, Bahamas, baby. All right. Go there. Wow, I'm so intrigued. Uh, it's been a very rough stretch for TripAdvisor. We talked a lot here over the past couple of years. This move they made to instant booking. They were trying to become more of an OTA, an online travel agency, like booking, like Expedia. Didn't work out so well, but it seems like there are some signs they're putting this snafu in the rearview mirror. And, and if that is the case, if they can get back to a place where they are playing nice with Booking.com and with Expedia, who are very big spenders on the TripAdvisor platform, then there's a little bit more certainty in the business, and we can kind of get back to growing that top line a little bit. On the on the bright side, I mean, this is still a very engaged platform. I mean, they have 433 million average monthly users. That was up 12% from the same quarter last year. Uh, 630 million reviews, up 26% from a year ago. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to appreciate what the actual platform is doing. Some some. Not so great business decisions, I think, put them on hold for a little bit, but they might start uh, turning a corner here. And so, investors, if you own shares today, and I, and I do, probably worth hanging on to them to see how these guys play out. Yeah, it's it's you, you mentioned some of those numbers. I mean, as as far as popularity, TripAdvisor is as popular as ever, and it has the the richest data it's ever had. I just the problem I've always had is just that next click, right? It's like yeah. people go to TripAdvisor, you get the data, you read the reviews, you find out what you want to do. 
and you click away. And Still go very else. much an ad play, and that's just that's right. just tricky. What about booking holdings? Because I'm wondering if, uh, to Ron's point about Nvidia, if booking holdings is a little bit priced to perfection because this was as rock solid a quarter as they could have put up. Uh, maybe the guidance scared people a little bit. I don't know. You know, they, they, you know why they changed their name to booking holdings because these guys know how to book stuff. <laughs> And uh, I mean, the, the twenty-five billion in in bookings for the quarter up twelve percent, excluding currency effects. Uh, room nights up thirteen point two percent, closing on two hundred million, exceeding their own guidance for the quarter. A presence in over two hundred twenty countries. I mean, this is just a if you're going to get exposure to the travel industry in your portfolio, Priceline is a must. This is a core holding, and if you look at the charts. I mean, year to date, one year, five years, ten years. I mean, it just there's never been a bad time to own this stock because it's such a massive network, and that really is what it's all about in this business. Having that network, it, you know, if you're on the side of selling rooms, you want to be a part of of, of this network, and I, you know, I think they just continue to build the business around that premise, and it's working out really well. Does William Shatner still have some of those shares that he originally <laughs> I, I got? God, I believe he, he hung did. On no, the I don't couple, think he did. Right? I think I don't think so. I think he got out at just, a very low price. Uh, Ouch. Coming up, two recent IPOs making headlines and Wall Street really seemed to like one more than the other. Details next. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Shares of IGE, the Netflix of China, got a boost this week when the company announced that its new partnership with JD.com is already paying off. What's the story, Matty? Yeah, so they just signed this the end of April, this partnership with JD.com, which is uh, the second largest e-commerce company in China. They kind of merged together their uh, JD Plus's uh, program, which is their prime kind of program, and then IGE's membership program. And they've already added IGE 1 million subscribers in about a week's time since signing that deal. So just you can see how that's paying off. Uh, you know, and they ended March with 61 million subscribers. I really think by the end of 2019, so the end of next year, they could IGE itself could have over 100 million paying members. Um, I was going to say this is um, a company we talked about before it went public. You were uh, as excited about the prospects of this company as any company I've seen coming into the market. How do you think they've been doing? Obviously, early days in terms of being a public company, but how do you think they're handling it so far? Well, I mean, nothing but good news so far. I mean, they had great first quarter results showing, you know, I think it was 57% growth in year over year revenue in the membership business, which I think is going to be the key business going forward. The question is, can they maintain that leadership in online video that they have right now in China? And I think partnerships like the one they have with JD are, are going to be pivotal to that. They've got a, a licensing deal with Netflix. Uh, and by the way, Golden Slacks gave them a buy rating <laughs> this week and a $23 price target, so that doesn't hurt the stock. Dropbox, the cloud storage company, out with its first quarterly report as a public company. Profits, revenue, and guidance all came in higher than Wall Street was expecting. And Jason? It just wasn't good enough. <laughs> no idea. I followed the golden, <laughs> golden slacks. Hey, no? uh, yeah, listen. I, I said when Dropbox went public, and they were talking about us, uh, you know, a quarter ago, and when they went public, I just I, I didn't want to have any part of it, um, and, and I stand by that. I mean, it, it could be a decent business maybe in time, and they turned in a respectable quarter. Uh, top line was up twenty eight percent. Still not profitable, of course. Paying users. 
of 11.5 million compared to 9.3 million a year ago. That's good too, because really, you know, when we look at their paying users as a percentage of overall users, it's still so tiny. It's like two percent, and so you've got a business here with slowing revenue growth. You know that that paying users is such a small part of the total base. There's no real competitive advantage, and the market's paying somewhere around like 11, 12 times sales for a business like this. And if you're going to pay that kind of a multiple, they need to be growing faster than they are. So I suspect we probably see this stock pull back some more here in the coming year, and maybe there's a point where it becomes a little bit more interesting, but not right now. I understand why they went public. I I understand sort of the rationale there, but. It, I was skeptical just because they're wading into a forest filled with giants. When you just think about all of the massive tech companies that are doing cloud storage, it just really seems hard for any upstart company to get any sort of toehold. I think that's the right observation. I mean, when you look at this space and you look at companies like Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, all doing that same kind of stuff, and, and to be clear, Dropbox uses Amazon's cloud storage for, for part of their infrastructure. Yeah, I, I just, you got to see something really special there, and I just don't see it with them yet. Fourth quarter results for electronic arts came in higher than expected. Capping a strong fiscal year for the video game maker, uh, Ron, shares of EA up about 25% in the past year. This is a solid report. They continue to put up really good numbers. Um, beat expectations. FIFA, Battlefield, The Sims continue to get it done. Um, their digital business, which is very important, let's get people out of the stores and let's get them downloading games, up 18%. That's solid. Uh, $2.4 billion share of purchase program announced. So everything looks good. But the big threat, as we discussed last week with Activision, is these new Battle Royale games, with Fortnite being the, the preeminent one. Um, they're, they're gunning for market share here. And as, as our friends at EA said, we don't see it as a threat, we see it as an opportunity. <laughs> so good luck, guys. Yeah, I'd say good luck indeed. I, I think in the short term, with all the attention on Fortnite, I think it does kind of hit EA sales uh, in the near term. But uh, the one one thing I'll add to what Bron said was, you know, Fortnite and other games have kind of created this whole, you know, uh, allure of esports and competitive gaming and these battle arenas. And I, I just point to, you know, EA's no slouch in that. I, I guess in the last quarter, 18 million players engaged in uh, competitive gaming using FIFA 18 and Madden NFL 18. That was up 75% year over year. So. EA's got a good footprint in esports. Uh, a lot of companies do, and I just think that is an emerging trend you want to watch for sure. I want to go some, back to something that Maddie said uh, when we were talking about Disney and uh, particularly the movie studios, and it's a hit-driven business. And one of the things that popped into my mind was uh, John Carter. Do you remember the John Carter oh, debacle? The debacle? Yeah, just the the huge write down. And and the more Disney keeps putting out hits from the Marvel universe, the further in the rearview mirror. John Carter becomes. And I, I sort of feel like Electronic Arts and Activision Blizzard, just as Disney has gotten smarter and better about making blockbuster movies, it kind of seems like EA and Activision Blizzard, are, they're also in a hits-driven business. And it seems like, collectively, they're doing a better job of it. I think I think that's fair. There's no way to get around that. Um, the digital kind of subscription business has helped to smooth revenue somewhat. Microtransactions, where you can buy five dollars here or ten dollars there to upgrade your suit or your gun or your weapon, has helped also. But I, I think you're right. It still is a hits-driven business. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think what you're seeing now with a lot of these companies is fewer titles, fewer newer titles, and as Ron said, just relying on those really popular core titles, but just augmenting them with all those digital additions, which just boosts the profitability for all these games. Shares of Latin American e-commerce giant Mercado Libre fell 3% this week 
after first quarter results fell way below Wall Street's expectations. Uh, Maddie, I mean, just from a headline perspective, the miss seemed much bigger than the drop in the stock. Right. So there's a little confusion, though, with the results from Mercado Libre this quarter. Uh, they adopted a new accounting standard, which requires them to uh, their shipping costs or shipping subsidies for free shipping and things is now being rolled into net revenue. As before, it was in cost of goods sold. It really has no impact on the business. I mean, in terms of gross profit, but it did hit the revenue number, which came in at. Uh, 19% growth year over year, which is a far cry from the 30, 40, 50% revenue growth we've been seeing. Again, it's just an accounting change, but I think a lot of it, it certainly affected the headlines in terms of what people perceived of the quarter. I would say of the, of the metrics I care about and what I think investors should care about, everything looks great. You have items sold, which is sort of my rough proxy for normalized revenue growth, up 50% to 80 million items in the quarter, gross merchandise volume of 34%, unique buyers of 28%, and then total payments transactions uh, across Mercado PayPal. Paygo, sorry, which is their PayPal system, up 69% to $74 million. The one thing I'd say I'm worried about, um, in spite of all these great results, is just that Argentina now is in the news again. Hyperinflation, recession, you know, uh, Argentina is still a big chunk of Mercado Libre's revenue. That's something to watch in the coming quarters. Yeah, Maddie and I were just wondering a little while ago, if perhaps, you know, Amazon kind of got into the middle of that Flipkart deal with Walmart, kind of Keeping Walmart, I think, focused on Flipkart and maybe sort of keeping their eye off of perhaps Latin America. What if maybe over the course of the next few weeks here, because now Walmart is committed and they've got a big deal they got to yeah. kind of get through, maybe maybe Bezos jumps in there with Mercado Libre and there's some kind of relationship or possible acquisition tied up there at some point. It would be a nice concession prize <laughs> yeah. to not getting Flipkart for sure. Where else should we be looking uh, for sort of the next battle royale when it comes to e-commerce? Because last week on the show we were talking about India and and sort of the the battle for Flipkart. Obviously, uh, Latin America is an important market. Is there anywhere else where where you find yourself looking or maybe trying to look into the crystal ball and see where Jeff Bezos and and uh, you know the folks at Walmart are looking? Well, it's tough to say, but I would say if we if we go to China, someplace where Jeff Bezos and Walmart really can't look, um, I think there's an interesting battle going on right now between Alibaba and JD.com. We talked about JD with their deal with IGE earlier. Uh, I feel like JD's got the the model, the better model that's going to win in the end. Uh, and JD is about an eighth the size of Alibaba. But it's just interesting to see these two companies go together and the partnerships that JD is doing with IGE and with Walmart, by the way, in China. Uh, before we go to the break, I want to say that if you are going to be in the Washington, D.C. area at the end of this month, we are having a listener meetup. This is going to be on May 30th uh, here in Washington, D.C. Well, across the river in Washington, D.C. Uh, we'll send you all the details. Just email us, radio at fool.com, for our listener meetup, May 30th. Radio at fool.com. Drop us an email. We would love to see you out. All right, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Coming up, conversation about the latest in Silicon Valley with best selling author and Bloomberg tech editor Brad Stone. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Got the 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Brad Stone is the senior executive editor at Bloomberg Technology. He's also a best-selling author whose latest book, The Upstarts, comes out next week in paperback. And he joins me now from San Francisco. Brad, thanks for being here. Hey, Chris. Thank you. Consumer technology, very much in the news. So, let's start with Uber. Earlier this week, you interviewed CEO Dara Khosrowshahi, and the big headline is Uber's plan to launch a fleet of autonomous flying taxis in the next couple of years. <laughs> and, and the money quote for, for me is him saying, we think cities are going to go vertical in terms of transportation, and we want to make that a reality. Yes, it's it's a little hard to imagine, uh, and and Uber has been talking about this for a few years, and frankly, so have other companies. You know, Larry Page has been privately funding a company called Kitty Hawk that has very much the same vision. But what Uber has done is they've kind of brought this this nascent industry together, um, and they've created some kind of specs for what the vehicles should look like. They should have four passengers and a pilot um, for the for the air, you know airports. They call them skyports. Um, they showed off some architectural drawings, and then they're leading the charge and working with the FAA, which, as you can imagine, Chris, uh, is a little bit worried uh, about some of the safety implications. So they say that they'll start certified testing in 2020. Dara, you know, felt comfortable with that timeline when I talked to him yesterday at the Uber Elevate Summit. But it's hard to imagine. I mean, I think that there's going to be so much that's going to have to change in terms of air traffic control and the access to pilots and people's just comfort with these personal electric aircraft. Well, one of the other topics that came up that seems like a much more achievable step in a shorter amount of time is the idea of Uber doing food delivery by drones. That's, that just seems like that's going to come before I step into a flying taxi. Yeah, we're pretty close to that. And, of course, lots of companies are working on that, uh, including Amazon and Alphabet. And the Department of Transportation has been running uh, a kind of program to allow testing of, of these kind of drone deliveries. And basically, they gave a green light you know, to a couple companies, including Uber, which is working with the city of San Diego. And Dara, on stage with me yesterday at Uber Elevate, said you know, that they had won that contract and they were going to start testing. And, you know, of course, the world has been waiting with bated breath for hamburgers delivered via the air. And now, uh, before too long, we're going to get to try that out. So, Kasra Shahi has been CEO for, I guess, close to a year or so. Um, how much permanent damage did Travis Kalanick do when he was running Uber? Or is Dara on a glide path to wipe away any damage that was done? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think in terms of the brand, very little permanent damage. Um, you know, Dara said the right things. This is a company that's showing a kind of sufficient amount of modesty these days. And if you look at the numbers, you know, they obviously did have some customers abandon them, but you know, worldwide, you know, not not significant. Um, but you know, and then if you look at it from the business side, you know, the the, the troubles at Uber allowed all of these competitors to raise money uh, to build on advantages in places of in the world like Southeast Asia, where Uber had to retreat from. And I think in that respect, it probably did impact the company. I mean, not you know fatally, but there are parts of of the world now where Uber is less welcome or competitors are more entrenched and it's partly because of you know Travis and how he ran the company for many years obviously if Uber were a public company we'd uh, 
have a much better gauge on the health of the overall business. They're a private company. So, you tell me, what is the current state of Uber right now? Um, they lose a lot of money. <laughs> Dara has acknowledged that. Um, they lost $4.5 billion in 2017. It's just an extraordinary amount. Um, but they've raised a ton of money. And he says he's bringing the company to profitability and getting out of places like Singapore and China and Russia, as they, as, as they, as they have done over the last couple of years, is, is going to improve the balance sheet. Um, you, know, they're, they, you know, they have a lot to do in, in, you know, in satisfying drivers, and that partly will work against improving profitability. But, um, you know, it's also a rapidly growing business, one of the fastest we've ever seen. And so it, in, in that, for that reason, it's kind of hard to measure. What is the likelihood that Uber goes public in the next, say, three years? Um, I think, well, Dara has come out and said that 2019 is the target for an IPO. That was one of the first things he said as a as CEO. And I think, um, you know, I think, I think uh, his investors and employees will hold him to it. So also this week, Google had its annual developer conference. And when I was at South by Southwest earlier this spring, Google's entire presence was about the Google Home Assistant. And at the developer conference, that assistant was front and center uh, with an artificial intelligence voice that was making phone calls, making restaurant reservations. And this was not, uh, not to pick on Apple, but this was not the Siri voice. This, this sounded completely human. And I'm wondering what your reaction was when you first saw that. Well, as with so many things in Silicon Valley, um, it was it was sort of introduced to the world without perhaps sufficient forethought. Because yes, they 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 presented some eerily human-like voices. They even said that you could customize your assistant with John Legend's voice, the voice of the singer. Um, and then they showed, they, they showed um, a part of Google Assistant called Duplex, which could like, call a hair salon and make an appointment for you. And, you know, and then they played that, and it was, you know, the, the voice is sort of fooling the, uh, the, the uh, phone attendant at the hairstylist, and it creeped a lot of people out, you know, and it was because here you're using a technology to kind of fool a human. It, it's funny that it's, they're calling it duplex because <laughs> you're duping people, but, you know, there's been a little bit of a counter-reaction to it, and people are sort of horrified, as my colleague Mark Bergen has written about, and, you know, I think it's like Google, another example of Google kind of marching ahead with technologies that maybe people aren't quite ready for. It does, however, if you put aside the creepy voice stuff, it does seem like Google may have raised the bar in terms of utility for this device. And I remember when we talked last year, one of the things you had mentioned was uh, you and your family have an Amazon Echo in your home. Uh, we got a couple of them. And, and maybe this has changed in the last year, but at the time you had said primarily it was being used for entertainment, for music, and, th- and that sort of thing. Right. How much, if at all, do you think Google and what they unveiled this week will enable them to cut into Amazon's very large lead in this market? It's a good question. We might not know until the holiday season. Um, I think Amazon's advantages in the market have uh, have less to do with, kind of ironically, the features. You know, I think one, it's, you know, Amazon's got the most powerful distribution system 
you know, out there, which is its own homepage. It's relationships with companies like Best Buy, you know, which, which Amazon is at least as well positioned as Google. Uh, but then I think, you know, people want these devices to just do a couple of basic things and, you know, playing music, getting the weather, getting the time, setting a timer when you cook. It's, it's, I, I, my guess is if you looked at the sort of feature usage, it's not, it's a, it's a pretty steep curve. Um, and so, yeah, Google's probably beyond Amazon in making, in, in allowing the device to do different things. But I'm not so sure that's going to really matter. And I'm, I'm not so sure that a lifelike voice matters. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. Amazon also has that first mover advantage, and you know, Alexa is sort of synonymous with the category. You know, while the Google Assistant was a second comer, it's got a kind of a lamer name, and it's got a lamer. People criticize the wake word, and I'm sympathetic with that. Like just saying OK Google or Hello Google is a little bit of a clunky uh, reaction. Speaking of Amazon, uh, Amazon was reportedly in talks to buy. India's leading online retailer, Flipkart. Walmart finalized its acquisition. Uh, Walmart now has the majority stake in Flipkart. You know Amazon well. Were, was Amazon really trying to buy Flipkart, or were they just trying to drive up the price? I wondered about that, too, because the regulatory challenge of Amazon, the number two player in India, buying Flipkart, the number one player, that was always going to be tough. Um, and, uh, but, you know, they like to be in the middle of those deals and yes, to drive up the price or maybe to create some kind of headache for Walmart. Um, so I suspect that, uh, perhaps they didn't have high hopes for winning that battle. Um, Walmart, you know, uh, you know, 77% stake in Flipkart, they spent $66 billion. It's gonna, it's gonna blow a hole in their balance sheet for the, for the time being, but it really cements this move, uh, on Walmart's part, you know, from a focus in in the West and in Europe to the East and in India and China, these these high, you know high population, high growth markets, and it's Walmart and its CEO Doug McMillan really putting a stake in the ground and saying, you know, if we're going to stop this Amazon juggernaut, we have to move into some of these developing markets and compete. Airbnb, uh, one of the companies featured in your latest book, is still a private company, and uh, it's been around for ten years. Uh, when you and I had talked previously, you had mentioned that Airbnb reminds you in some ways of Amazon. Amazon's path from when it got started to when it went public was about like two years. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. two or three years. Yeah. Um, it, it, are investors going to have a chance anytime soon to uh, own shares of Airbnb, or are they hell bent on remaining private? I think you know the CEO Brian Chesky is is just you know is stubborn about this, and he he you know he sees the future of Airbnb in sort of dramatic epic terms, and you know he he sees it not as a home sharing company but as a travel company, and so you know he's put off an IPO for this year. He said that uh, he recently um, you know he's made some executive hires. Uh, he promoted Belinda Johnson to COO. And, um, you know, and then, and then he's been working on, you know, expanding the portfolio, creating, you know, actual kind of Airbnb homes that the company, you know, builds and manages itself, uh, and then moving into other things, other services for travelers. So, and those efforts are so nascent. So, you know, if they want to show investors that there's something more than a home sharing company, you know, they still have a lot of work to do. So I, I don't see an IPO for Airbnb anytime soon. Last question, and then I'll let you go. Uh, what are you watching these days? What is a technology on your radar that has you curious to learn more? 
I mean, I think, you know, it's AI just so dominated Google I.O. this week, and it wasn't just duplex. You know, it was Gmail writing, you know, writing emails, suggesting words for people. Um, they displayed a new uh, tensor processing unit, a new AI chip. Um, they, they added AR to maps and uh, added AI to picture sharing. So, you know, Google will like automatically, uh, Google Photo uh, make suggestions on editing your photos or who you can share it with. And so these, you know, they seem somewhat trivial, um, but like it's a, it's a, you know, it's incredibly fascinating technology that's being added to all, you know, different kinds of services that we use every single day. And, you know, and that's, it also comes with these companies gathering more information about us and, and then also pushing the envelope with, with what society is comfortable with. So to me, you know, it's as fascinating a time as ever to cover this tech environment and, and, and the, you know, and how people feel about it. His latest bestseller, The Upstarts, is out in paperback on May 15th, so pick up a copy. Brad Stone, appreciate the time. Always great talking to you. Thank you, Chris. Good talking to you. Coming up, we're going to dip into the full mailbag, answer a couple of questions, and of course, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Hey, quick word about Rocket Mortgage. So maybe you're not buying a house, and maybe you're not looking to refinance your mortgage. But if you are, if you're doing either one of those things, you should really check out Rocket Mortgage. Because when you're making a big financial decision like that, you want to be as confident as you are at your job, in your everyday life. And Rocket Mortgage is going to give you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple. Rocket Mortgage allows you to fully understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. I've got $2 in the jukebox, $5 in a bottle. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Matt Argersinger, Ron Gross, and Jason Moser. Listeners weighing in this week from Benjamin West, who writes, Please, please, please cover the Redfin conference call. (laughs) It's the most fun I've had listening to a conference call since Tesla's. (laughs) <laughs> you tell me, Ron. Redfin CEO Glenn Kelman, not exactly a household name. Did, no. Did he make some headlines? Uh, he just, you know, he said a few things. One, he said uh, it, with regards to new competition, and and this is a, a real estate company that that's really attempting to disrupt the real estate industry. With respect to new competition, he said, "quote Bring it on." So uh, you know, it's a little little bluster there, but. Uh, you know, the company is it's doing well. It hasn't been public that long, really less than a year. One public at 15, stocks at 22 now, certainly in growth mode still, um, and should, will be for quite some time. Revenue up 33% for the quarter. Market share, they did they continue to capture market share, but they're still only at 0.73%. But again, it's a huge industry, so that, that's, that's a meaningful number. Um, but gross margins fell. They continue to be Unprofitable and not cash flow positive. You know, call me crazy. I like profits. <laughs> uh, our Twitter handle for the show is at Motley Fool Money. You can follow the show and hit us up with questions like this one from Josh, who writes, Why doesn't Motley Fool Money ever show Trade Desk any love? It's a rule breaker recommendation. Where is the love? <laughs> Maddie, I think the love is on Wall Street because on Friday, <laughs> shares of Trade Desk were up about 40%. Amazing move, uh, but I think part of that has to be related to short covering 
uh, if you, coming into the report, about 9 million shares uh, or 20% of trade outstanding shares or about a third of its float uh, were sold short. And that's according to S&P Global Capital IQ. So I think a lot of those shorts are covering today big time. Uh, but you know, uh, when you have that many shares sold short and you crush expectations, and they did, you're going to get a move like this. I mean, the forecast was for 73 million in revenue in the first quarter. They report 85.7 million. That's up 61% year over year. They were looking for adjusted earnings of 7.5 million. They did almost 19 million, uh, and they raised guidance sharply for the remainder of the year. I don't follow the company close enough to really know this, but I feel like management had to be sandbagging a little bit on these expectations, or otherwise they just had an amazing, unexpectedly great quarter. Uh, but this is programmatic advertising, and I think it's getting more and more prevalent over things like mobile and video. And Trade Desk is a leader in that, uh, and until. Apple and Google changed the way uh, we're tracked along the internet. Uh, I think uh, Trade Desk is going to do just fine. You see, they're sandbagging in golf. Bad. <laughs> sandbagging in investing is good. Good. Let's get those stocks on our radar this week. And our man behind the glass, Steve Broida, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Steve, do you like tires? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got uh, Healthcare Services Group, ticker HCSG, housekeeping and nutritional services for 3,500 facilities such as hospitals, retirement homes, nursing homes. Uh, really long history of profitability, recently expanded into food services. Um, it's a very fragmented industry, but they're kind of the big guns here. They've increased their dividend for 58 consecutive quarters. That dividend now stands at a 2% yield, and I think the stock still has some nice upside to it. Steve, question about Healthcare Services Group? How did you find this thing? <laughs> <laughs> this is a recent recommendation in the Total Income Service. Ah. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Sure, we're going to jump back down to Georgia for Ameris Bank Corps. Ticker is ABCB. A uh, little $2 billion market cap bank there that just keeps on growing. And it's really been a story of, of total assets. The FDIC saw this as a worthy partner back in the days of the financial crisis to kind of help cleanse the banking system of bad business. And so they've grown that total assets base from around $2.5 billion in 2010. Uh, it's going to be about $11.5 billion by the end of this year with a couple of acquisitions that are rolling in. Uh, just a well-managed little bank. And I mean, at the time, you know, you just you'd have been crazy to invest your money in a in a small cap Georgia bank. That was ground zero at the time. Uh, but man, these guys have really made it work. The stock has just been on a tear since since that uh, financial crisis up about four hundred percent. And I really don't see any reason for it to stop. Steve, Ameris Bancorp. When we hear a lot about this uh, war on cash, does does this bank is this bank affected in any way? Hey, they have ATMs, Steve. They have ATMs. <laughs> Matt Argersinger, what are you looking at? I'm going to be a bit of a homer. I'm sticking with Mercado Libre ticker M E L I. I think you've got to take a look if you haven't in the past. I mean, it's down almost 25% from its recent high. Recent results are outstanding, and I know I talked about Argentina. I'm a little worried about that, but I think uh, management strategy of really focusing on free shipping, payments, user loyalty, even if it's costing margin in the short term, uh, is a company you know you just want to take a look at it. Uh, and you know, Jason said it. I, I think Amazon lost out on Flipkart. Mercado Libre is sitting out there, shiny trophy potential. Steve, question about Mercado Libre. When we uh, talk about shipping in Latin America, who does this shipping? Is it, is it a national postal service like we have here, combined with private uh, shippers? Who wow, does uh, I, I I believe there are national postal services like we have in the United States, but for Mercado Libre, they use a kind of a network of commercial private shippers between that, that go between countries in Latin America for a lot of their shipping. Three very different businesses, Steve. You got one you want to add to your watch list? I think I'm going with Ron's weird healthcare. <laughs> 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 Nothing yeah. weird about it. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Thank Chris. you. Again, drop us an email, radio at fool.com, if you have stock questions, or if you want to join us for the listener meetup in Washington, D.C. on May 30th. That's radio at fool.com. That is going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.